in the beginning. That is actually the exact same way the entire Bible starts. Going to Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning. Creation starts with those three, four words, in the beginning. Three words, I was right the first time, dang it. By starting his book, the same way that Genesis starts, John is getting our direction pointed back to creation. See, the Bible is actually just one big story. The Bible is not a collection of different stories, but it is a deeply connected story. It's kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Go with me for a second. See, in the MCU, there are multiple stories within, right? You've got Thor's timeline, Captain America's timeline. You've got Loki, which if you haven't seen season two, it's going to blow your stinking mind. But anyways, we've got all these stories that are happening, but there is one overarching storyline going on. Everything feeds into this main story to progress the overall timeline. Even though there are many movies and TV shows, the whole universe really points to a moment when Tony Stark will defeat Thanos and sacrifice his entire life for the rest of people. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Just as the Marvel Cinematic Universe is one story, so is the Bible. We live in the middle of one big story. In the first section of the Bible, the Old Testament, it has one major goal. The whole Old Testament is pointing to our need for a Savior. The Old Testament is the story of God creating humanity and then God's people rebelling against him time and time again. See, God wants our life to be like the Garden of Eden, but our sin keeps separating us from this perfect God. The whole Old Testament is the story of God's people not being able to choose God and them needing someone to come and stand on their behalf to connect them back to God. The beginning of the Old Testament shows how we can momentarily be connected to God. In the beginning of the Old Testament, so we've got first the story of creation, and then it goes into the story of the first family, but it quickly moves into these laws or commands of God. God gives us these commands to follow, and it says when someone breaks the commands, a payment must be made. Just like a crime deserves a punishment, right? We wouldn't want murderers walking around. We're all on the same page there. Our sins are a crime against God. In justice, God is a just God. Justice demands a punishment for a crime. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So the payment for our sin is death. Something would need to die to cover our sins. Leviticus 17.11, which is in the very beginning of the Bible, tells us that blood makes atonement for life. Blood has to be spilled to pay for our sins. We would need to sacrifice, in the Old Testament, a spotless animal to pay for our sins. And you might have wondered, if you've ever looked at the Old Testament, why do we need to sacrifice animals to cover our sins? It actually goes back to creation in the beginning. Because after Adam and Eve, the first two humans, after they sin, they realize they're naked. In a moment, like, uh-oh, got to cover up. This is awkward. And in order to cover their nakedness, which symbolizes in order to cover their sin, their nakedness was just them realizing that they were away from God, realizing they were sinful. So in order to cover their nakedness or to cover their sin, what God does is he kills an animal and he uses that animal to provide clothing. That clothing of that animal covers their nakedness, just like blood from an animal can cover our sin. This set the precedent that in order to clothe our sin, death would be required. So the only way to reconcile the imperfect, which is us, with the perfect God 
was the ultimate sacrifice of death. And all throughout the, old, the story of the Old Testament, there was these temporary sacrifices of animals, and it continued to happen. But the problem was humanity kept sinning. We couldn't keep up. There was not enough animals to sacrifice. We would no longer be able to eat meat. Evidently, I went to the meat counter and met Josie there. I remember that moment. Taylor and I also eat steak once a week, so that's, don't judge me. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's our sinful habit. Forgive us. We're sacrificing it for the Lord. No, just kidding. That's not right. See, the Old Testament, it tells then. So it creates this need where we need something to pay for our sins. What the Old Testament continues to do then is it tells us that there is a Messiah who would give his life as a permanent offering for our sins. No longer we need these animals because there's a permanent Messiah coming. Change everything. The Old Testament is all pointing to our need for Jesus. That's why it's important to read the Old Testament. It points to what the people of God have been waiting for. And then John starts his story, which is kind of the transition we're getting from the Old Testament to the New Testament. John starts his story by saying, here comes the light. Here comes what you've been waiting for. In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Words are very impactful. Think about it. Words can breathe life over someone. Words can bring death and heartache to someone. Many of our life decisions come down to the words of other people. Think about it. I love you. I believe in you. That changes everything. How about you're a failure? You'll never measure up. Words have power. If you look back to your biggest moments, I'm going to go out on a limb and say a lot of them have to do with a word someone spoke over to you, whether it's positive or negative. Your relationship with your parents might be decided by the words they spoke to you. If they constantly told you you're never going to measure up, you're not doing good enough, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you spend your life striving to be perfect right now. But if your parents spoke to you that you are loved no matter what you've done, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you feel some security. Words have power. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. The words last. People do not forget the words spoken over them. Scars, physical pains, usually those go away, right? But a word, words run around our head forever. People remember things spoken to them years and years ago, long after the pain is gone. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is telling us that this word, this word is not something that was said. But rather, this word is a person. What John is telling us is the word, Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus was in creation. It goes back to creation in the beginning. In the beginning, the beginning was Jesus. Let's go to the creation story. Genesis 1, verse 3 says this. And God said, let there be light. And God said, God spoke a word and light came. God's words have the power to create. This word is the source of creation. And through John telling us that the word has been since the beginning and that the word is Jesus, he is telling us that since the beginning of creation, Jesus has been the plan. God did not create humanity without a plan to save humanity. Don't believe me? Let's go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It says this in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, the virgin shall, shall conceive a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Hundreds of years before Mary gives birth as a virgin, we're told it's going to happen. 
tell me God doesn't have a plan. God has had a plan since the beginning. He's been planning for the virgin to give birth to a savior since the moment of creation. From the very beginning, God knew we would need a savior. So from the very beginning, Jesus was the end game. Speaking of end game, let's go back to the MCU. From the beginning of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Kevin Feige, who's the creator of it all, he knew Thanos was going to be the villain. And he knew that Thanos would need to be defeated. Iron Man was in the Marvel Universe from the beginning. What's the first movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Iron Man, unless you go by chronological order, which then is Captain America the First Avenger, but that doesn't work with my illustration. From the dawn of the Marvel Universe, its savior was present. Iron Man was the first movie in the beginning. If Kevin Feige is smart enough to provide for savior, I think God is. God has had a plan for restoration and a plan for grace from the very start. And why is that important? You're like, thank you for the history lesson. This changes everything. I think we often think of the Old Testament God as vengeful, wrathful, and angry. And if we think that God used to be like that, that's going to skew our thoughts of God now, right? If we think, oh, he used to be angry, we can say, but he's changed now. But if you had a boyfriend who used to be a jerk and used to tell you naughty things, you're never going to forget it. Words last. So if you have a bad boyfriend who's mean, kick his butt to the curb. You won't forget it. Anyways, but there is grace in the kingdom of God, except for bad boyfriends. No grace. Get them out. Anyways. And then the bad boyfriend's like, ah, but it'll be fine. If we once thought that God was angry and vengeful and out to punish us, we're going to worry that he's going to turn back to that. We're going to worry that he'll rewind the clock and be the same God he used to be. We worry that God could get mad at us, that we have to perform for him, and when we don't measure up, he's going to turn back to the Old Testament angry God. But if we think that way, we're missing the point. God was not angry in the Old Testament, but then graceful in the New Testament. God did not change his mind one day after humanity had been screwed up for long enough and then decide, you know what, fine, I guess I'll give these people a savior now. Jesus, get on down there, figure it out. I'm sick of them being idiots. No, 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 Jesus was the plan the whole time. The word. In the beginning was the word. The word was in the beginning. God doesn't change. God does not change. God uses this, this phrase that is first echoed in Exodus 34, 6 to describe himself all throughout the Bible. It says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God has not changed since then. God has been full of grace for all of eternity. God is merciful. God is gracious towards you. God is slow to anger with you. Even when you're really quick to anger with other people. So slow to anger with you. God abounds in love towards you. That's how God was. That's how God is. That's how he always will be. What that means and why this is important is it means God is not changing his mind about you. This means you can't tick God off too badly. Oh, I screwed up too much this past weekend. I'm out of luck. No, no. You don't have to worry about God not loving you anymore. You can stop striving. I'm going to go out on a limb and say some of us worry about things, right? Some of us worry, just me. All right, I'm glad you guys are more holy than I am. I worry about things. But see, if we think and put two and two together, 
if God is never changing, and it says that God is gracious and merciful and loving towards us, so God likes me, so why worry about what else happens? Because the God of the universe is on my side, and he's not changing his mind about you, so we can stop worrying. Because even as our earthly circumstances ebb and flow, God's opinion of you does not. No matter when life is good or when life seems to be going down the toilet, Jesus is still there. So we don't have to worry because God doesn't change his mind about you. In the beginning, in the beginning was the grace of Jesus. And boy, is that good news. Let's continue on in our passage. We've just covered verses 1 through 3. Let's go to verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what we learned is that we are living in the middle of a big story that started with creation, right? And now John is telling us that with the coming of Jesus, the light has entered the story. The light has entered the story. And that changes everything. Going back to Marvel one more time. In Avengers Infinity War, there's a moment when Thor shows up with a big old lightning axe. And it changes everything for a few minutes. And it ends up not going so well in the end. But don't worry about that part. When he shows up the first time, it changes everything. I want you to think back to the creation story. Remember, what was verse 3? And God said, let there be light. His word had the power to bring light. Jesus, the word, coming to earth, brings light. Here comes the light. You can see it had been too dark for too long. If we look at our own lives, I think if we're honest, it's been too dark. Long. Darkness is actually just the absence of light. You can't have the presence of darkness. That doesn't, that's not scientifically proven. Scientifically, all darkness is is the absence or removal of light. So we choose the darkness when we do things that are a removal of God. When we do things that aren't centered on God, that is darkness. For example, we obviously choose the darkness when we give in to sin, things that are against the commands of God. When we give in to things like sexual immorality, anger, drunkenness, deceit, pride, greed, apathy, anything that goes against God's design, stepping in the darkness. But the beauty of us Jesus followers sometimes is when we step into the darkness of sin, we like to take it one more step further, and we hide that sin. Because we don't want anyone to find us, we're in the darkness, we'd like to stay hidden with this part of our life. For the sake of appearance, we act like we have it all together, and we run deeper and deeper into the darkness when we're hidden. Because we become horrified at this idea of telling someone about our shortcomings. If people knew the real me, they would not think highly of me anymore, we think. They would judge me. We think, I'm a Christian. I'm a small group leader. I'm on the worship team. I can't struggle with this. I can't be honest about what I'm struggling with. I'm surrounded by Jesus followers, and they're all perfect. Go to small group. You'll learn they are not all perfect. And see, the struggle to hide our sin issues, the struggle to hide the dark parts of our heart, is something that I completely relate to. Growing up, I grew up in the church from the time I was an infant. And I always felt this pressure to be the good church kid. Anyone relate? Anyone feel that pressure growing up? Had to appear perfect on the outside. The old ladies come at church like, you are looking wonderful. And I'm like, yeah, if you knew what was actually happening. Anyway, see you, Granny. We feel this need to appear perfect. 
So I felt this, and then I also felt quick, like it was my job to point out other people's sins. What a great idea. Let's point out the issues of other people. That is not a wise path to go on. Don't feel the need to point out other people's sins. The Bible's very clear about what happens when we do that. But for me, I'd be judgmental, my friends and family. Like, you guys are all doing sinful things, and I would put on this performance, but in the same time, I was sinning. I was struggling with things. See, in middle school and high school, I struggled with a lot of sexual sin, pornography. And I felt like I had to hide this from everyone. I was a good church kid in the worship team. But the really weird thing is, is my very non-Jesus-following friends, they would talk about porn all the time. And I would lie to them. And then I would tell them why they're wrong for doing it. I'd be like, I would never do something like that. Don't lie. I would say things like that. And that is wrong on so many levels. First of all, why did I feel the need to lie to my friends who were bragging about doing sexual sin? They didn't love Jesus. Why am I putting on a performance for them? They don't care. Messed up. Anyways, second, why would I judge people for doing the exact same thing I am doing? Didn't make a lot of sense. All that to say is I get it. This continued on to my senior year of high school. I got a girlfriend. We crossed a ton of boundaries. And again, I did not tell anyone. See, I was in the darkness, but I was also terrified of the light. Because I didn't want my sin to come out. So I stayed in the darkness. I remember being terrified anytime someone grabbed my phone because I was afraid of what they'd find. I sneak around with this girl and hide it from my parents. I was literally surrounded by darkness. Here's tip number one to overcome sin. Be places where it's light outside. You'll do less sinful things if you're not in the darkness. If you're in the woods with someone of the opposite gender and it's dark out, go away. Go find a light pole or something. You're not doing something right. Sin grows best in the dark. That means metaphorically and physically. Keep the lights on. No reason to dim the lights in the basement when your parents are upstairs while you're watching a movie. Just turn them on. It'll be fine. I promise the movie doesn't look that bad. All right? So point number one, stay in the physical light. Point number two, stay in the spiritual light. Such an idiot. I remember, anyways, I don't need to dive into my sin issues. Keep the lights on everywhere you go and you'll be better. See, when I was struggling with sin, I felt like I had to figure it out on my own. Like, I, I thought that, you know, I've got the strength. I can overcome this. I think we often overvalue our own strength to come over, overcome sin. Like, I can do this without help. Why do we feel this need to outrun the darkness on our own? It doesn't make sense. I want you guys to imagine you're in a dark room that's enclosed, like there's no way out. It's impossible to outrun the darkness in that room, right? There's no doors, there's no windows, it's just one room that's dark. You can't outrun it. Because the room is full of darkness and there's nowhere to go. You can't outrun a dark room, right? You're stuck in there. There's nothing you can do on your own. There's no amount of effort you can give to eliminate darkness. There's only one way to eliminate darkness. You gotta turn on the light. The key to overcoming the darkness in our lives is to run to the light of Jesus. We do this by running to Jesus through things like prayer, reading the Bible, worship, spending time with God. So to overcome the darkness, first we run to the light of Jesus, and second we run to the light of community. We let people into our lives. The light shines brightest when we're living authentic, open lives. You have no need to hide anything. People in this community love you. People who love Jesus love you. And if they don't, they're doing it wrong. 
Be honest about where you're at. That's how we turn the light on. I think sometimes we like to work really hard and think we can just grit our teeth and bear our way to overcoming sin when all you got to do is flip the switch. Don't make it harder on yourself. Do Jesus. Be honest. John, who writes this book we're reading this, in these next couple of weeks, he doesn't just talk about the light in this one book he wrote of Jesus' life. John has other things in the Bible, and later on in one of John's letters, he re- revisits this theme. It says this in 1 John, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we say we walk with Jesus while walking in hidden sin, we are liars. Not that we're to be perfect, but that we're open and honest about where we're at. Bring things to the light. And if we do this, we walk in the light through fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, as this verse says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. See, the light has come to cleanse us from sin, but we've got to be honest about the darkness in our hearts. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. See, this is the beauty of light. I want you guys to all imagine you're in the darkest room. You guys do that for me? Made it easier for you, didn't I? I want you to imagine you're in the darkest room. See, no matter how dark this room is, Because we have this light on, a little bit of light. Even though we turned off all these lights, if we turned off these two and turned off all of them except this one lamp, we'd still be able to see a little bit, right? No matter how dark a room is, no matter how long it's been since a room has seen light, if you're in this room and we turn on one light in the middle of a very dark room, the light will shine. Darkness can't outrun the light. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter how dark your life has been, no matter how long you've been away from Jesus, no matter how long your life has felt dark, the light can shine and overcome the darkness because the darkness has no power over the light. The darkness has not overcome the light. You are not too far gone. The light always wins. The moment that the light of Jesus enters our story with the birth of Jesus, from that moment, from the moment the light of Jesus entered the story of humanity, death lost its power. From the moment baby Jesus came to earth, sin, death, hell, and the grave lost. The arrival of Jesus means the darkness is lost. Here comes the light. And the light comes to light up the darkest parts of your life. But it only do so if you let the light in. We can turn the lights back on because we're going to have a really awkward transition. And we're going to go back to sixth grade Derek. 
in my sixth grade, I heard of this girl, and she evidently had a crush on me. And you know, I felt pretty good about that. I was like, all right, a girl likes me. Don't really know her, but it'd be kind of fun to have a girlfriend, so hey, what the heck, let's go for it. So I asked her to be my girlfriend. We had a good couple weeks. It was strong. It was a powerful few weeks. But as the week, maybe week and a half, maybe two weeks went on, I started to realize that the light of our relationship had started to grow dim. We had lost some of the luster, so I decided it was time for us to break up. And my plan for my life, my plan for this relationship was, I'll just break up with her and then never talk to her again. Because that seemed like the simplest and most kind thing to do. We'll just avoid each other because that'd be awkward to keep talking, so we'll both just move on. Here's the problem with that. She didn't really like that plan. For multiple years after this, I'm not exaggerating, for multiple years after this, she would randomly message me and be like, yo, baby D, we got to get back together. She's like, I miss you. I dream about, I'm not lying. You guys act like I'm playing this up. This is quotes. She's like, I need you in my life. She legit said, that time in sixth grade was the best time I've ever lived. I'm not lying. You ask Taylor. It's in there. She would tell me, I still got feelings for you messed me up, baby. She missed me. Said I was the best thing that ever happened to her. I was in sixth grade and full of riz. Come on, baby. Oh, boy, is right. I look good back then. Frosted tips and extra 50 pounds. Come on, baby. Here's the problem. So she'd message me. I was one of my path. I had my story. And she wanted in. She wanted back in my story. And I was like, no, get behind me, Satan. No, you will not be in my story. I did not let her back in. I'm like, you are from the devil. No, I'm just kidding. She's not from the devil. She's a nice lady. But she wasn't for me. I was like, that is not the plan God has in my life, and I'm not interested. What actually happened is so she messaged me on Facebook. And then the first time, I was like, hey, no, thank you. Thanks for asking. And then the second time, I was like, hey, I'm just not interested, brah. But it's okay. We could be like friends that don't talk to each other. It'd be fun. And there was one time I did respond by just saying, no, with like 10 O's after the end. I was a jerk. Taylor found this on my Facebook and made fun of me for it for a long time. But anyways, see, she wanted back in my story. She wanted on the DQ train, and I said, you are not allowed. She wanted in my story, but I did not let her in. And the same thing can be true of us with Jesus. Jesus wants in your story. The light wants to come into your life. But you don't have to let him in. You can reject the light of Jesus. We have to let him in. The question I want you to ask yourself tonight is, have you let the true light enter your story? Have you let the true light enter your story? I emphasize that word true because of the next verse of our passage today. We'll continue on to verse 9. The true light, which gives life to everyone, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. This is Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. Jesus came to his own. His own people did not receive him. The true light. We are told in our society that there are many ways to live. There's many ways to heaven. There's many ways to the good life. Many ways to satisfaction, fulfillment, many ways to eternity, but that is not what Jesus says. Jesus so clearly states later in John's book, in John 14, 6, Jesus says to people, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the way. He's the only path. Being a good person does not get you to heaven. Following other gods does not get you to eternal life with God. Our deeds, our performance, they don't earn us a spot with God. Jesus is the only way to God. We cannot earn salvation. It's a free gift based off of the work of Jesus alone on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for us on the cross, and that is the only ticket in. In the beginning, when God created the plan for humanity, he knew we didn't just need any Savior. He knew we needed this Savior. Jesus is the only Savior of life. Because, see, Jesus doesn't just give light. Jesus is light. The way to God is not following rules and regulations. The way to following God is following after a man. The key to living in the light is not being a good person. The key to living in the light is following the only good person. Jesus is the truth. Jesus gets to define reality. Jesus gets to define right and wrong. What the world says, not what's true. We don't get to live our own truth. You don't live your truth and I live my truth. No, there is a truth and his name is Jesus. We do not define truth. We are not smart enough to define the truth of reality. Jesus alone is truth. So if something Jesus says goes against what culture says, even if it's hard, Jesus wins. Because Jesus was in the beginning with God. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was in the beginning of creation, so Jesus gets to define reality. Were you with God when he created the universe? No. You don't get to define reality. Jesus gets to define truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the Word, the author of truth. What the Bible says goes. Jesus is life. Nothing else will satisfy you. Pursuing worldly goals will come up short. The only way to have life abundantly is to live it sold out to Jesus. The other ways we try to find life, trying to find it through achievement, entertainment, pleasure, money, they come up short. No matter how good your grades are, no matter how much money we have, no matter how much sex we have, none of those things will satisfy. Life is only found in Jesus. Everything else comes up short. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And have you let the true light enter your story? Have you let the true light enter your story? The Jesus of the Bible. Not the Americanized Jesus that says you can live for God in the American dream. Not the watered-down Jesus that doesn't stand for truth and says everything's okay. No, have you let the true Jesus enter your story? Or are you acting like the religious people of the Bible? When Jesus came to earth, the religious people, his people, as we just read, rejected him. Verse 10, it says that Jesus is in the world, yet the world did not know him. See, Jesus is trying to enter your story, but we can reject him. If you haven't accepted Jesus yet as your Lord and Savior, tonight is your night, because he's revealing himself to you right now. He wants in your story, but you've got to open up the door and let him in. Or maybe you've been involved with Chi Alpha this whole semester for a couple of years, and Jesus has been showing you what the light looks like. Have you let this change you? Have you chosen light over darkness? Have you started a journey of overcoming sin? Have you let people deep into your life? Have you dove all in with Jesus in community? Have you made Jesus your top priority? Jesus is revealing himself to you. What will you become? Will you let the light shine in your story? The beauty is, doing so is quite simple. Not easy simple. So how do we let the light in? It goes back to 1 John, the verses we read. How do we let the light in? We let the light in 
by being holy and being honest. You're holy, honest, simple. Alliterations, you remember. We must decide that as children of God, we are going to act like God. We will be holy. We will run from sin. And when we screw up, which we definitely will, we will be faithful to confess our sin. Be holy, honest. So you remember how I told you that growing up, I had a lot of sin issues in my life that I didn't tell anyone about. Remember that? Those continued throughout college. Taylor, my wife, and I, when we were dating, we crossed a ton of sexual boundaries. We didn't tell anyone. I continue to lie about my personal purity issues. I continue to lie about my issues with my high school girlfriend, and now I was lying about my struggles with Taylor. And this all boiled up until one day I couldn't take it anymore. I was sick of hiding, sick of the darkness. So I walk into my older brother's office. He was my pastor as well. Kind of awkward, to be honest. There it was. And I laid it all out there. I told him that I lied, covered up sin. I was full of shame. The really interesting thing is I had, at this point in time, been married for a couple years, and so the sexual sin of my life, I hadn't struggled with for a couple years. After I got married, those went away, and so I had overcome the sin. It wasn't there still, but I still felt full of shame for years and darkness because I was hiding my sin issues. Even those in the past, even though Jesus had forgiven me, I still felt full of darkness because I had never told him. So as I confessed this sin from a long time ago, I felt weight being lifted off of me. I felt free. And my older brother, in all his poetic goodness, responded with saying, well, thanks for telling me. I'm going to get back to work now, if that's all right. I said, sounds good. So me telling him did not change him or impact him whatsoever. But for me, I let the light in. And although I've been far from perfect, since that day, I've never struggled with sexual And I think letting the light in has helped me. And I haven't felt the light. Be holy. Be honest when you're not. As we let the light into our lives, we are called to let the light shine through our lives. As we let the light in, we shine for all to see. Verses 6 through 8 of our passage is a little interjection where John, the author, introduces John the Baptist. Two different people. He's not saying, like, I came to bear witness and I'm awesome. No, John's not doing that. John's introducing a different John. They didn't have Google. They didn't have that many name options to think of. So it says in John 1, 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. What this is telling us is as the light enters into our lives, we have a calling to help the light enter other people's lives. We are to be like John the Baptist. We are to bear witness of what Jesus has done. Jesus tells us later on that we are to live our lives like a lamp. Matthew 5, 15 through 16 says this, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but it goes on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is our calling as Jesus followers. We are to live a life where people look at us and recognize that we are different. This is another reason why not to blend in with culture. If your life looks the exact same as the people around you, how good of a witness is that to Jesus? That would be quite a dim light, quite covered up and very hard to miss. We want our lives to be bright lights where it is obvious we are different from the people around us. And then people will notice and they'll want to know what is so different about you and then you can point to and say, I've let the light in and now it's shining. Don't say it like that. That'd be really awkward to say I met this guy named Jesus. 
This means you need to live your life as a light to your classmates, to your dorm mates, your coworkers, your friends, your family. The way we do this is first, we must represent Jesus to them. We have to be like Jesus to them. If you're always complaining, being negative, talking bad about people, swearing, gossiping, talking dirty, doing unholy things, you're not quite representing the light the way it's supposed to shine. We have to show people the holiness of Jesus in our lifestyles, not in the way we judge them and telling them to be more holy. We don't need to tell people to be more holy. We just need to act more holy and they'll come and notice. Our job is not to tell people about their sin. Our job is just to live as a light for all to see. We have to represent Jesus to the people around us. Show people that God has actually changed me. I'm not just a Christian on my name tag. I'm a Christian in my lifestyle. We are to be different from the darkness. That means shining the light. But this also means, so as we live as Jesus, we are also to bring Jesus up to people. We have a calling to talk to our friends about who Jesus is. We are called to invite our friends to small group, to invite our friends to here on Tuesday night so they can meet Jesus. Because I pray that on Tuesday nights and in your small groups, Jesus is there. So by bringing them there, you're bringing them to Jesus. The goal of every conversation should be to point back to Jesus. Because you have the light of the world. You have the light of the world. And you get to show it to people. We should be so welcoming and inviting. My prayer is that every student on campus at least gets an invite to Chi Alpha. After that, it's up to them. We don't have to worry and stress about them, like making sure, forcing them here. No, no, no. But everyone gets an invite because we shine so bright. So do your classmates, do your doormates, do your friends, do your family, do your coworkers know that you are a child of God? Do they know how they too can become children of God? Because everyone in our lives needs to know those things. Because remember, lamps don't stay hidden. What's the purpose of a lamp? To shine. We don't have shades over this. You gotta shine. Don't hide what God has done in your life. Don't hide. Don't be so scared of the people around you that you don't bring up Jesus. Don't let social nervousness or awkwardness get in the way of someone coming to know Jesus. Whether you're introverted or extroverted, you're still called to be a light. You don't get to put on a lampshade that says, I'm an introvert. You don't get to put on a lampshade that says, I'm not a college student anymore. You don't get to put on any lampshades. You just got to shine. You know that song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's so silly. But imagine if we did. Imagine if we let the light of Jesus shine through our lives. In the middle of a dark campus, I want you to imagine every Chi Alpha student walking around in a little lamp. Even when the nights get dark, the campus would be full of light. Because this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. The main idea tonight is when the light enters, our story changes forever. We're on a pathway. And when the light enters, that should change the world. We need to continue our passage. John 1, 12 says this, but to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, the light wants to enter your story. The light wants to make you a child of God. And that should change your story forever. You come to Jesus going on one path, 
But when the light enters, that should change things. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to change your career or your location or practical things, not external things, but it should definitely change internal things. Our hearts should be changed as we meet Jesus, your holiness, your honesty, your mission. We should live a life now to walk in the light as he is in the light, and in me there will be no darkness, and then we will help other people find the light. Here comes the light. The light has come. The light has come in his name, Jesus. Jesus comes to change our story forever. Jesus is the climax of the story of history, and he wants to be the climax of the story of your life. And if we will let this light shine, we'll be so full of holiness and authenticity. Our campus is going to light up. And then students will come to know the light. People have their lives changed, and that will bring hope. See, our lives can be like the moment. Imagine a dark room, a dark living room, and then the moment you plug in the Christmas tree and it lights up. Or imagine the moment when the snow starts to melt, starts to get lighter a little earlier. What do those moments provide? They provide hope. Our lives can provide hope. Our lives can be a picture of hope and light amidst the darkness. All because the light has come. If you're here tonight and you haven't let the light of Jesus enter your story, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So if everyone will close your eyes, bow your heads. What I'm going to do is I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand as a symbol to Jesus, as a symbol that you want the light to enter your life, that you want to give your life to God and accept his payment for your sins on the cross. If that's you on the count of three, you want to give your life to Jesus, raise your hand. There's one. people who are entering your kingdom, God. Thank you for the new sons and daughters into your life, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. Amen. Amen. You can all open it. I think that no matter where we're at in life, whether this is your first time here, or you've been here a hundred times, sometimes we let the darkness in, right? We all need more of the light. What I want you to do is if you want to accept this light and let Jesus into your heart, I want you to just open your hands like this right now. Put your hands like this as a symbol of opening up your heart and letting the light in. And I want to pray over us as we're doing that. Jesus, I pray that we will be a people who let your light shine, God. I pray holiness over our community, God, that we will be people who loves you first, that no matter what other people say is the way, the truth, and the life, we will pursue you with reckless abandon and stand for what you stand for, God. And we will stand for holiness and we will be the children that you've created us to be. Jesus, I pray that we will be a place of honesty and authenticity. I pray for sin confession this week, a small group. I pray for a place of freedom in this house, God. I pray that we'll be free of sin because of the honesty in our hearts, Jesus. I pray that you'll stir things in us. And God, I pray that you'll send our group on mission. God, I pray that this group of people will be the brightest lights this campus has ever seen. God, I pray that you'll open doors for students to meet other students who don't know you. Jesus, I pray that you'll empower the students in Chi Alpha to shine bright for all this. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen and amen. We're going to worship together one more.